Hello and welcome to WexCast, the podcast series that delves into the multidisciplinary work of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. On view May 20th through July 30th, 2017, Gray Matters is a dynamic survey of 37 contemporary women artists working in shades of gray. We're happy to have several of them visit the WEX for the opening celebration, including Carmen Winant, an emerging Columbus-based installation artist who's also written about art for publications like Freeze and Art Forum, and Michelle Grabner, an established painter, writer, and curator who's currently working out of Milwaukee. For this edition of WEXcast, the two of them joined me for a talk about the connections between their practices, some issues surrounding representation of women in the art world, and some personal thoughts on how perceptions about art made and shown in the Midwest may be changing. Thanks for listening to WEXcast. I'm here with Gray Matters artists Michelle Grabner and Carmen Winant. Carmen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Same thing, Michelle. Thank you so much for taking time out of a very busy day and crazy day to, to talk to us today. And um, we're very excited about the show. Obviously, it's uh, Michael Gidson's first for the uh, center and also 37 amazing women artists representing um, a, a vast array of career points, styles, media, um, points of view. And um, we thought that it would be great to get two of you together and sort of talk about um, your work and about the show. And I guess I would start with um, one of the uh, things about uh, the work that both of you do, um, Michelle and Carmen, uh, pattern plays into it a certain degree of repetition and I was kind of wondering how that became part of your practice if you wanted to start Carmen sure um, for me that began in this sort of interest in repetition in particular began from a somewhat unorthodox place in that I was a competitive long-distance runner for many, many years um, and, and went to UCLA to do that and only discovered art in the process and some time later. So in some way, it never dawned on me to make art any differently than I had been, to practice art any differently than I had been practicing sport. Um, I had been used to for many years, for over a decade, um, sort of accounting for my every kind of bodily movement, and not only that, but um, participating in a sport that sort of required me to do the same movement over and over and over to sort of um, endless <laughs> exhaustion and fatigue. Um, so for me, I was sort of thinking about athletic performance and athletic ritual. When I got started working that way, it was a kind of muscle memory for me that was um, that was sort of already inert, and uh, and then as I became interested in specifically feminist narratives and sort of thinking through um, women's work and uh, you know reading, say like um, Merle Laterman, Ukelis, uh maintenance art manifesto where she says right like ma maintenance art is a fucking drag your maintenance is a fucking drag right like I do it all the time um, and that I started to actually see the connection between my life in sport um, and I guess you could say my gendered life and those things started to take shape in the way that I made work and how I made work um, was 
thinking through the rituals of repetition as sort of enacted through my body, um, however boring and however invisible. Okay. How about you, Michelle? Yeah, I think there's a lot of crossover uh, with Carmen. Um, when I was in grad school, um, both uh, when I was working on an art history degree um, and then also moving into um, a master's degree in fine arts, I was doing a lot of research on women in popular culture. I was looking at Laura Petri, I was looking at uh, Lucille Ball. I was, uh, this was film, this was television, media studies, and thinking about um, uh, the role of women within uh, television culture particularly. And uh, you know that was an academic pursuit and it was interesting to me. Um, but when I came out of the academy uh, and I went into the studio, all of the repetition, all of the routine, um, the script, let's say, uh, that these uh, performers were engaged in uh, was something that was very real. Uh, you know, having two young kids, starting to think about repetition, looking to uh, controlling time, being able to monitor the everyday. Um, so it was so interesting to me to think about uh, looking at it, looking at um, uh, women's work in academia and then being able to step out of academia and thinking about the routine uh, repetition, looking to the backdrop of my everyday experience, looking at patterns in the blanket that was laying over the couch or the paper towel that I was you know, mopping the floor with, those kind of things. And seeing that routine was just kind of flipping, flipping how I was thinking about um, an intellectual pursuit, but then taking that intellectual pursuit and making it and, and setting up a, a situation of uh, repetition for myself. But then very much like Carmen, also lately, more lately, thinking about um, controlling time and how repetition can do that and how when uh, when one starts thinking about uh, gender relationships to labor or to work, um, how being able to control it, not having the luxury or even within uh, culture, capital culture, right? How capital has us um, being distracted. Capital likes us being distracted. So the idea of boredom has become really interesting to me and I've been talking a lot about boredom and thinking about uh, David Foster Wallace and how he was thinking about boredom as a human condition and as a way of being able to take control of time. Um, that is not something that uh, um, necessarily needs to be a problem. Um, but so that is boredom and its relationship to uh, time, controlling time and repetition, something very important. That um, sort of just it reminded me of something else, um, which maybe I, th I think bears mention because there's a more obvious strain of connection between, I think, an important strain of connection, but, but maybe a more apparent one between women's work um, and women's labor and uh, sort of the, the nodes of repetition. And I think, too, at least for me, coming from an athletic background, um, when I, well, at least when I was running heavily, I was reading, um, I was reading uh, Jill Deleuze and thinking about masochism, however tame. And, uh, of course, Deleuze in, insisted, insisted upon masochism as... Um, as never a singular act that that it's this thing that you know in order in fact to be masochism in order to sort of engage in some play with pleasure and pain um, we have to sort of do it over and over and over and over again um, so I think that repetition sort of holds um, as as a sort of creative as creative content and as a creative strategy it holds a lot of promise, sort of the thrust of boredom, the thrust of, you know, pleasure, of pain, uh, pointing to sort of the politically trenchant question of women's work and women's invisibility. Um, so it seems like there's there's a lot there. Absolutely. And, um, and 
definitely in the works that I've seen that you have here at Gray Matters. It's it, there's uh, that sense of pattern, but also very very much that sense of labor um, with both pieces. And and would you like to talk a little bit more about the piece that you've got specifically in the show? Oh sure. So the large tondo, it's a it's a 108 inch diameter, and it's a simple a radial composition. So it's a found composition, um, and you know for those of you who haven't seen it but want to kind of have an image in their head, think about a clock. I mean, it seems to radiate as a clock without numbers. Um, so it has a kind of uh, consistent linear quality center to edge. Um, what's interesting about this piece, and Michael really challenged me in thinking about scale, and um, and also thinking about scale again in relationship to to uh, women's work and labor, um, and being in a privileged situation, and, and actually the privileged situation uh, in which um, I have a very large studio and my children are grown, and and so there is a funny relationship to the idea of not only repetition but craft but scale um, as one evolves um, as uh, as an artist, but also as in my case as a teacher or mother. Um, but uh, but in, in regards to um, this piece, what was interesting to me is uh, I'm confronted with, again, um, being a 54-year-old, thinking about um, my body in relationship to making, right? So in the past, it's always this fine motor skill, right? Whether you're using a scissors or hand, so it's, it's wrist work. And then this kind of radial, uh, radial um, uh, metal point that I started a handful of years ago was really about a kind of another athletic um, imprint, and that is a, a, a kind of a... Um, a different kind of athletic arm movement, arm gesture. And this piece, I had to create a contraption, basically a plank, um, a free-spanning plank, in which uh, would span the uh, the 108 inches diameter in which I could sit on. And it's basically a sit-up that I'm doing from center to edge. So it's a full body uh, um, line. And that was so interesting, me thinking about that, but then also thinking about you know when the body breaks down. I'm at that point in time where um, you know what my body can do, uh, what is the time frame in which this work can happen. So that kind of labor in relationship to the body is becoming fascinating to me. Um, and as my eyes start breaking down too, what kind of labor will it? So, so that is just that's just a reality of, of the you know again a human condition our biology um, and thinking about how that now is affecting um, how I think about repetition too it's very it's, it's it's exciting I have to say a lot of people would lament this breakdown but I'm actually quite excited by it uh, what that would yield that's that's such a refreshing perspective to hear on that I have to say <laughs> <laughs> so if you wanted to talk yeah, well, a little I just bit, want to start by saying that that feels so entirely familiar to me in my former life as an athlete I mean you you knew you were resolved when when you're you're sort of you reached utter exhaustion right mm -hmm. like that that was the point by which you knew the thing you know was done and complete um, so that's really interesting to hear um, I I've had sort of a unique experience putting this piece together, um, my normal MO is um, to spend a lot of time and invest a lot of energy in collecting sort of quote unquote original images, however sort of oxymoronic that sounds. Um, and um, in, in this case, this was the first time that um, I reproduced the images myself. Um, so there's over 4,000 reproductions and then I hand cut them all. Um, so the sort of the labor is vested, uh, I think visibly in a really sort of different way. And um, it was a, it was a risk for me. <laughs> um, I think 
uh, I think I sort of found found the meaning, at least for myself, in, in my work in the past to sort of exist in the complications and contradictions between the kinds of images that appear. So to have the same image sort of insist upon itself over and over um, uh, felt for me to be like new and sort of slightly dangerous territory where at least the stakes were shifting a little bit. Um, and you talked to me in a moment where like I'm not entirely resolved on what those what those stakes are, um, but I'm interested in how sort of labor has shifted um, through the, the sort of in, you know insistence of a repetition of the same image over and over. Am I answering your question? Yes, you are. <laughs> um, yes, because the, I, I have to say is that I what I had seen of your work, it was a part of part of the the interest was just the images that you put together and um, the variety of images. And then with this, there's just something so strong and so striking with that just endless flow of repetition. That yeah, it makes me a little nervous. You know, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, and, mm -hmm. and uh, certainly I think that there is some potential there. Um, in the past, I've noticed viewers you know, standing in front of sort of one section for a long time or recognizing, in some cases, even personally recognizing someone in one of the images um, and sort of stringing together narratives um, you know, between the cells. And that possibility doesn't exist here. I mean, there are new possibilities, potentially, um, around, you know, um, abstraction and, and uh, you know, qualities of decorativeness. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sort of curious to see the ways in which this work will function um, with viewers. As are we. And um, as you know, uh, this uh, is 37 contemporary women artists, and it's actually a full calendar year at the Wexner Center in which um, the galleries are populated entirely by women artists. And uh, I wanted to ask if you've participated in all women exhibitions previously and what your feelings are about these kind of exhibitions. Sure. I there, there was a show, I believe it was in 2010, and it was a, a pretty good commercial gallery in New York City, a large commercial gallery named Harris Lieberman. And they had an exhibition of all women painters. And I went, you know, maybe about 35, 35 um, painters. And I was included in that as, I, I believe, um, Suzanne McCullen, uh, maybe a handful of people who are in this exhibition may have been in that exhibition as well. I can't remember. And it was funny because 2010 was a different time, and the gallery... Uh, you didn't. They, they didn't write a press release about it being an only, uh, being a, a show of women painters only. Um, you know, as as, as, as they were kind of sheepish about it. But at the same time, it was very blatant. And I, I wish there would have been more text. I wish it would have been brought into a discourse, as opposed to we're going to slip this in and kind of test the waters what this would mean. And you know, I, I'm thinking back that maybe 2010 wasn't the time for that. Um, you know, we'd have to think about that a little more carefully. But um, so I participated in that show. I, I, as a curator, I often think about what it would mean. When I was invited to curate the 2014 co-curator of the Whitney Biennial in 2014, um, that crossed my mind pretty heavily. What would it mean if I only invited women artists to participate? And I, you know, I really dealt with that for a while. What would be the ramifications? And um, I have to say, I wasn't dissuaded from doing it, but. 
the reality would be um, that that would be the conversation around my contribution to the 2014 biennial, and it wouldn't be about the artists I selected or the work that they selected. And I thought that would be unfair, so I backed away from that, obviously. Um, but it is something that I think about, but mostly as a as a curator. And I can tell you that I was, um, you know, over the moon when I was invited to participate in such a great group show of, of extraordinary artists um, um, with gray matter. Okay, and how about you, Carmen? Um, yeah, I mean, I can, uh, of course, there's, as Michelle alludes to, uh, it's uh, in some ways a complicated history, and there are plenty of folks who feel as though um, all female shows, uh, let's say, continue to ghettoize female artists or um, contribute to their outsider status. Um, for the most part, I, I am not of that belief. I think that there's real progressive promise um, in, in an all-female show and that oftentimes um, the curatorial rubric is more complicated than that, that female artists have more in common with each other than being female mm -hmm. um, when it comes to their experimental impulses. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I want to sort of basically echo Michelle and say that I'm really excited to be in this show, um, and I see those, um, I see those sort of impulses <laughs> happening mm -hmm. as I walk around the galleries, um, and um, I echo her again to say that um, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that it can be not the exclusive discourse, but certainly a part of the discourse, and and of course it's relevant, you know, selfishly it's relevant to my own work. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting to me because um, I I spoke to we've all spoken to Michael Goodson here about the uh, the thought process that went behind the exhibition and it really it did start with the palette and then sort of grew from there into realizing that there were all of these wonderful women artists that could fit into his vision for the show and so that said I'm kind of curious how he approached you about the exhibition and participating. You know, when when Michael reached out to me, you know, he had a, a good conceptual sketch uh, of of how uh, he was thinking that this exhibition um, would uh, manifest itself. Um, you know, I uh, and I think there's so much more potential in the idea of, of the concept of, of what gray can be. Um, I really like how he how he enters into the idea of grisaille, and grisaille as being. Um, foundational. It's the thing that one does before one starts adding color, right? It's a foundational process to painting often. Um, uh, and, and thinking about grisaille as, um, and this is where I, I'm still kind of sorting this through, and, and that is grisaille is um, uh, equivalent to thinking about a, a minor art. Um, and I've been very fond of dragging back in uh, to my recent thinking this Deleuze and Guattari text called Toward a Minor Literature. Um, and it was a discussion about um, Kafka. And, but the minor as something being in the margins, but the freedom on which one can kind of think about, in this case, art making from that position. Um, and we can, we'll probably talk about that when we talk about the Midwest, too, or the American, the American interior. Um, but really kind of thinking about Grisaille that way, but also starting, and also just, uh, you know, how, how can one not uh, be tempted into thinking about uh, the contemporary conditions in which we're living and the kind of murky befuddledness, whether that's coming out of uh, our politics or our relationship to uh, um, ecology or 
economies, um, and that muddledness is, is a, a, it's a reality. We may not like it, but it's a reality. And we just don't have the privilege right now to be ideological or to swing into um, the polemics of black and white as much as uh, you know, that seems um, refreshing. We just, we're not there. Uh, you know, we just can't be there. And so we really, we're, we're in the thick of this, uh, this, this fog. Um, for me anyways, I can, I should only speak for myself. Um, you know, and, and that, you know, that fog is within how I think about, you know, raising a 13-year-old, how I'm teaching an undergrad class, what I'm doing in the studio, how I'm uh, thinking about interpretation when I'm writing a piece of criticism. So all of that is so interesting. So I, I really, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big idea. And, um, uh, and I'm, I'm just so glad to be sorting that through conceptually, but also participating in it in, in exhibition as well. Absolutely. I, yeah, I have to say that um, that's, that gray is the place that we should all try to, to come to right now is just so resonant. It just touches on so much more than, than, than you know, even even what's just in front of you in the galleries and, and just affects your life. But um, would you like to? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would give an answer, I guess. It's maybe not so dissimilar <laughs> from my last answer, um, which is uh, that female artists often have more in common with each other than being female um, due to their... <laughs> Uh, their experiences in the world, uh, to sort of put it bluntly. I'm reminded of that great uh, Jenny Sorkin show at Hazard Schimmel and, and Worth, uh, which you know folks have been talking about for a long time, and with good reason. I was struck, and that was, of course, an all-women's, um, uh, I forget what it was called, this sculptural Sculpture, yeah. abstractions. And I was really struck in that show, um, and maybe this is sort of an obvious point to make, but by how sort of similar artists, uh, female artists, um, sort of what a similar kind of sensibility they were tapping into um, in the same moment across coasts, say, or people who didn't know each other, or how these Ruth Asawa drawings sort of reminded me of the Lee Bontecube, you know, like there, it seemed like there were um, these sort of um, incredible, not necessarily commonalities, but but shared impulses, um, however sort of abstract or representational um, and I'm struck um, in some similar way by sort of how I see this happening upstairs in terms of in terms of grayness let's say across all of its meanings thanks um, so I have to say that one of the reasons why we wanted to get uh, the two of you together is that uh, you are both based in the Midwest. Carmen, you're here in Columbus. Uh, Michelle, you're in Chicago. And um, as a Midwestern art center, we, uh, we think a lot about how um, perceptions of, of what we do can change based on geography. And I'm kind of wondering, um, uh, why you've chosen to to work where you do, and if you feel like there's still a sense of difference or possibly even bias uh, about work that is made or presented outside of, say, the art capitals. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, let me uh, let me uh, tell you that I teach at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, but after 20 years living in Chicago. Um, we moved to Milwaukee. We're back oh. in Milwaukee, so um, <laughs> maybe more interior, more uh, American interior. Wow, uh, so you're even more Midwestern yeah, in a way. <laughs> I, think, I think so. I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, uh, and 
Milwaukee's interesting because, you know, Chicago is actually built very vertically. It is in the Midwest. It's in the American interior, but we'd say it's your, our, the middle of America's capital, right? It's just start measuring it in terms of population. And, um, you know, so it, being in Chicago for 20 years, you realize that Chicago still is, like I said, built vertically. It measures itself, its cultural productions, against centers. It thinks of itself as a center. And moving to Milwaukee for some practical reasons, because one can afford many studio spaces there, and one could not afford even one studio space in Chicago, um, Milwaukee is flat. And one, and I, I, in, there's a really interesting relationship to freedom when one doesn't have to work into the shadows of these vertically built, overly culturally produced uh, cities, um, where one can try things out. Um, and I just feel very comfortable uh, uh, in that place, um, thinking about um, not only uh, um, you know what one does in the studio, but how one thinks critically about uh, cultural production from all over the place, um, where uh, one just has freedom of interpretation that doesn't have to come with the politics, let's say, of New York or so forth. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, so, so I love being in the Midwest, and I never would choose to go to New York, even though I do a lot of work in New York. It doesn't mean that one, that you still have to interface, you still have to watch carefully about what's going on in these cultural centers. Um, but by the fact that uh, you get some distance from these cultural centers, you can often see the blind spots. Um, you know, regardless of what New York tells you, it can't take on everything. And as a matter of fact, it misses some very obvious um, points of uh, discourse. And uh, when one can pull away, one can actually see those things and fill those and, and address them um, when one is off-center. So again, thinking about uh, our regionality, regionality I think is really quite interesting again. We're starting to think about that. So. If I'm visiting uh, grad students at Yale, or if I'm traveling to um, Los Angeles, uh, um, or even uh, you know some of my grad students in Chicago, you know they're they're going maybe to their friend's farm in Vermont because there's a press there instead of going to New York City where they typically would. So there's something happening um, where New York is interesting. It is we, we just have to you know say it. It's it's the it's the place of distribution. Things things circulate there. I don't think right now it is the place where interesting ideas are being produced. Um, interesting ideas are being produced elsewhere. That doesn't mean it, it, you know, New York has been the place where ideas have come to a, 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 a fore, and, and you may have to get back there. Why do you think yeah. that is? Yeah, I, I think it's economics. I think right now um, it, uh, the, the idea of distribution um, um, has almost trumped ideas. I think we're changing as the economy is changing, as administration and politics are changing. Um, so I think that that is, uh, is an exciting thing. But I, you know, I am certainly not the expert because uh, during our economic downturn in 2008, I really thought we were going to see a, a big shift. And um, you know, the art world, as with uh, much of the financial world, came back and fortified itself pretty strongly. So um, there wasn't really a shift. It actually fortified the idea of distribution um, um, and a marketplace. Um, um, so yeah, so but but it's important to watch. I mean, and, and it may be, you know, I, you know, in, in a year from now, I, you know, we can be talking again, and I may say, you know, moving to New York is is where the thinking is happening. Uh, you, you don't know things change like that. Um, but right now, it feels very good to be um, um, uh, off center and in um, the regions. I, you know, I think a lot about locality, um, regionality, and the global, and how those things intersect. And um, you know, the global likes to transverse. And, and, you know, swoop in. And when we think about locality all the time, we see there's a, you know, there, it's a total embrace of the market of, of you know, locally produced things. Um, but the ideas around uh, not only uh, the local, but actually the regional, I think, are super interesting. 
I think so as well. And um, Carmen, I'd love to hear from you on this as well, just because I know uh, uh, you work here, you also teach here at Columbus College of Art and Design, but you've also shown around the country. Yeah, well, I want to sort of start by um, saying, too, that I agree it's it's a really exciting time for, uh, let's say, decentralization. And my experience, maybe I can back up now and say, my experience before coming to Columbus three years ago of the Midwest was little. Um, I had been here many times, but only to run. So I was sort of fly in, <laughs> you know, land in Indiana, stay in the hotel, uh-huh. go run across country race, uh-huh. come back and leave. So I sort of had some sense of the weather and the landscape, pretty much. Um, so it was really, I grew up in Philadelphia, I spent 10 years living in California, so um, it was really, a, a f- I was a foreigner in a foreign land when I came here. Um, and I can talk about it, I guess, in different ways, as, as an artist, as, as a writer, as a teacher, and as a human being who's affected by politics, I guess. Um, uh, I, won't, I won't sort of uh, dilly-dally too long in any one of those categories, <laughs> but um, I will say, I, I guess, as, as, an, as an artist and a writer, I've been really pleasantly surprised, I think, for some of the aforementioned reasons. Um, I lived in New York for a number of years, and um, it won't be a surprise to hear that it was, it was really difficult, intensely competitive, um, and outrageously expensive. Um, it was a really, really difficult place to be an artist, and I tell my students now, um, who feel like they need to sort of immediately move to New York, um, to be really realistic about, um, you know, if, about whether or not that is the best and sort of most useful place for them. Um, so I, I've been really encouraged uh, by the academic institutions like OSU, like CCAD, where I am, um, like the Wexner, of, of course, um, as an art institution, and by the community of people around and sort of uh, who participate um, in said institutions, I find it to be pretty vital and, and supportive um, in a way that uh, I didn't find necessarily living in Los Angeles, San Francisco, or New York. Um, you know, of course, there's really sort of basic limitations of, you, I was reading the New Yorker upstairs and looking at all the listings, um, you know, of some of the, let's say, like the cultural events that I would like to um, participate in or sort of be privy to. Um, and that's, of course, the trade-off in any case anywhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, as far as being sort of like a human being and a friend and a partner and an artist, um, I found that um, it it is... Um, it's a generative place to be. In fact, when I moved here, I remember telling my editors at, you know, our Freeze or Art Forum, like, okay, I'm not going to be writing for you anymore. I'm moving to Columbus. And they all said, like, you know, are you crazy? We don't have anyone writing there, you know? Um, so my hope is that, um, uh, you know, more and more artists will seize upon the possibilities of decentralization and think about, um, you know, the regions, as, as Michelle says. Um, and I will say too briefly, as a teacher, it's presented me um, with a kind of open and receptive class, uh, sort of series of students, I should say, who um, aren't necessarily... Um, you know, feeding off of the market or mm-hmm. really sort of tuned into market trends in a certain way that I actually think can be really useful and productive for their work. Um, so, um, you know, I would certainly be uh, lying if I said I didn't, you know, sort of long in some ways for friends on either coasts or, you know, to, um, 
you know, to go see a certain play that's coming into town. Um, but also I've found that um, there's far more possibility here than um, what I otherwise anticipated, and there's a tremendous amount of, of growth. And yeah, I, I, I definitely think in terms of possibility, um, um, I agree that the decentralization would primarily be economically driven, um, but at the same time when you're in uh, a city like Columbus, there's just uh, also not an oversaturation. There's there's an opportunity to try more and to 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 ex experiment a little more. And without that crushing um, uh, uh, risk of failure in a in a city where the stakes may be a little higher economically, uh, a, a little higher in terms of the competition. Um, but um, I do feel like there are those possibilities, and I have to say one of the more exciting things that I have read about recently in terms of what's going on in, in the Midwest is uh, the Cleveland Triennial that's coming up in 2018, and Michelle, you are one of the organizers of it, and I was wondering if you would uh, tell us a little bit more about it. Yes, that's right. Um, it's, it's front. It's uh, going to be a triennial, international triennial. And uh, what's very exciting is that it is uh, working with a handful of partners. So this is, I think, what's unique. I mean, you know, we I, uh, we could talk about biennial or triennial fatigue, um, uh, but there's something interesting going on here. And, and I would say, uh, just a just so you get a sense of um, maybe it's most like. Uh, partner maybe a little bit like Prospect, Prospect New Orleans, right? So um, except for the fact that uh, Prospect started as a city that uh, was ravaged um, uh, and uh, bringing culture back in to kind of reestablish a foundation, a cultural foundation to that city was really important. Cleveland, on the other hand, is thriving. It's a thriving city. Uh, you know, the Cleveland Clinic, uh, progressive, um, you know, that's the nature of these uh, middle American uh, um, cities. No longer is it necessarily um, um, industry. It's a different kind of industry. So uh, Cleveland is a really interesting place. Um, you know, it, it has it, its uh, um, uh, you know bigger city problems, um, but uh, the. What, what Front is taking on is a collaboration with MoCA Cleveland, the Museum of uh, the, the Cleveland Museum of Art, um, Spaces, the Akron Art Museum, um, the Allen Memorial Museum in Oberlin. So we're working with a lot of partners as well as uh, different spaces, Transformer Station in the city, um, uh, Ohio City uh, Gardens um, Farm, the um, the market at the West Side Market. So it's really it's a really interesting thing. Lots of people are involved. Lots of partnerships. Um, so that's exciting, and it is international. We're bringing artists in from all over the world. Um, there's going to be a residency component in the Glenville neighborhood, uh, which is just a couple blocks north of uh, uh, the museum, um, a really interesting neighborhood. And there's a, a, a building that will house artists in this kind of residency, and then another building next to it, which will take on um, a kind of a studio location. So, um, you know. Watch for it. There's going to be a lot of exciting things happening on the programming front. Um, Jens Hoffman and I, Jens is my um, um, uh, co-artistic director, I guess he's the co-artistic director in front. We're going to be doing a Great Lakes tour. It's interesting because Jens is a proper curator. Um, and not that I'm not a proper curator, but I'm, I'm sitting here as an artist first um, who takes on some curatorial tasks. And, and Jens is so interesting because he realized that this region, the Great Lakes region, which you know I feel that I know very well, is, is new. It's new to a lot 
of the art world. It's a it's a place that just hasn't been kind of mined. Um, you know, we think about Chicago, we think about Detroit or, or Columbus. I guess Columbus is south. Um, but uh, Jens and I are going to be kind of circling the Great Lakes and seeing what's going on there. That'll be happening in the fall. So. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting and it's an experiment. Um, you know, these relationships, all the people involved, uh, bringing people to Cleveland. You know, we talked to some artists in Paris, and I'm like, Cleveland, Cleveland. You know, they're, they're, first of all, they don't know where it is, and, and so, so it is. It, it'll be interesting, um, but good, but good. And is that that's next summer? Yeah, it's going to open in uh, July 2018. It will overlap with the Carnegie International by one month, so it's through the end of September. So I believe the Carnegie opens. Uh, beginning of September, so kind of an interesting overlap. So some people will be able to hit both, and they're not that far apart, right? Two hours maybe, something like that, cities. Well, it would be wonderful if we can get people to drive to Columbus as well. Um, <laughs> but um, I was wondering uh, if there's anything that else that you would like to add about, uh, about your work in the show, your participation in the show, about being here today. I would just like to say that I'm just so happy to be here sitting next to Carmen. Um, uh, we, we came to know each other two summers ago at Squahegan and, uh, um, you know, getting up there in years, talking about myself, not you. Um, you know, it's just so nice to know that there's, not, not, not nice, it's just confirming and uh, um, rewarding to know that there's young women artists working. Um, um, uh, both in education and thinking about women's work um, and working politically, um, uh, it, it just it gives me hope. And, and there's, you know, we're talking a lot about gray right now, so um, <laughs> some some light in that gray. Well, I was going to say the same thing. I've looked up to Michelle for a really long time as an artist and, and a writer in particular. Um, and um, not that I don't admire your curatorial cur work, which is something that I relate to a little bit less. <laughs> And um, so it was really a pleasure to meet her two summers ago, and it's nice to be in the same show and sitting here. And um, I look forward to the opening and, and the other folks who will be coming into town. Well, I think that's all that we have. So thank you, Amy, so much again for your time and for participating in the show. And uh, once again, it's Gray Matters at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University through July 30th. I hope you can join us. For more information, go to wexarts.org. <laughs>